I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. I recently taught at Schumacher College and spoke about the work I'm doing about imagination. Afterwards, a few students came up to me and said, you must speak to Vanessa Andreotti. She had, earlier that week, Skyped into their class and presented her thinking about imagination, among other things. So I tracked her down and got in touch, and we had the following fascinating conversation. Vanessa is a professor and is the Canada Research Chair in Race, Inequalities and Global Change at the University of British Columbia. She has a particular interest in education for and about international development, in global citizenship education, in global justice and in the ethics of internationalisation. I started out by asking her why she thought it was that those students felt I should speak to her and what her sense is on the current state of health of our imagination in 2018. I think they wanted me to talk to you because probably the analysis that they were presented in the frameworks they were presented were a bit different from what they had been presented before and um, so I work with collectives both um, that include scholars, students but also activists, artists, um, uh, people in health um, all looking at specific questions that relate to the question you're asking in relation to the imagination, but in a nutshell, what we're looking at is the fact that our senses um, of self-worth, belonging, enjoyment, purpose, hope, and security are all tied up uh, in a specific structure of being. Uh, some would say it's a neurobiological structure, but it's definitely not just a structure of thinking or imagination uh, as, as we tend to think about it in terms of imaging a future. It's, it's deeper than that. And um, in, in, in order to change, the, the, this architecture imposes restrictions on the imagination and on how we relate, how we act, because it conditions, it's like it conditions certain muscles and not others in our being. And um, unless we have a form of ontogenesis or neurogenesis, we won't be able to uh, break this. Um, but at the same time, like in Brazil, we have this, this uh, saying that it's in a situation of a flood, it's only when the water reaches your bum <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that you can actually swim, right? Before that, if the water is at your ankle or if the water is at your knee, you can't swim. You can only walk. So we have been talking a lot in the collective about this, about timing and what it takes for us to um, lose the satisfaction with the things that have given us pleasure and comfort so far, um, not only like in, in material terms, but also in, in the sense of self-worth, belonging, enjoyment, its sense of entitlements as well, so that we would start to disinvest in the structure that creates this, uh, this thing. And in many ways, like it's, it's an, it can be compared to an addiction process where we get dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin in certain ways. And of course there are infinite possibilities of different configurations but this this is the easiest one this is the 
the most um, available one? And then what would it take for us to choose to be in withdrawal and to try different things is kind of part of what we are, um, what we're asking through the questions of the collective. Mm. I, I, I interviewed a guy called Henry Giroux a little while ago. Do you know him mm -hmm. in America? And he uses this term, he talks about the Trump disimagination machine, uh -huh. uh, which I thought was really fascinating. That, that idea of a kind of uh, an intentional process that we are in, which is kind of designed to pacify and sedate our, our imaginations. And I noticed that you, one of your of the things on your website you, is you asked the question, how have our dreams been tamed? <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, how have our dreams been tamed? And I wonder right. what your reflections were on how have our how have our dreams and our imaginations been tamed? I think mm, so. How do I answer that? There are many different ways, but I think I'll choose with to make reference to this house, and then I'll go back to Trump. So in the collective too, we use the analysis of uh, and then the figuration or analogy of a house to talk about um, what it's like the basic structure of modernity. And if you imagine a house with a foundation, a baseline, like the, the, the floor uh, representing our separation from um, being entangled with the earth, so we call it separability, our sense of separation. Then there are two carrying walls, one carrying wall representing Western humanism and this idea of a singular rationality and also the, uh, the sense that being can be reduced to knowing that uh, I think therefore I am and all of that. Then there's another carrying wall of the nation state that also conditions how we think about um, uh, security and belonging. And then there is a roof right now of shareholder capitalism, of financial capitalism, that is um, that has a damaged structure in itself, and that is leaking in the house and bringing water damage to to the to the walls and to the foundation of the house. So, um, in terms of our dreams being tamed. When we think about global change, we generally think about either fixing the house or building another house or using the tools, the same tools. But it's very difficult to think about not living in a house or other kinds of houses like a sweat lodge is a, in the shape of a womb is, is a house too. But that's a temporary house. It just provides temporary shelter. So in that sense, our dreams have been tamed by the house itself. We can only imagine change as long as we keep the same securities, as long as we keep the same sense of entitlement. We can't imagine, uh, for example, purpose, the purpose of life. That house has created the idea that it's, it's meaning. So we have to find meaning in life. But is it like what, what life is about? Is, it li is, is, is life about finding meaning, where does this idea come from? There's a genealogy to that idea. But it's it's not just a matter of thinking differently, uh, because we can think differently. I think there's two things. There's the, the two problems is that when we, we when we see that the house is damaged and that it will need to, it, it, it will run its course um, and we'll need something else, 
the first uh, response is usually let's fix it, let's expand it, let's find a way to keep it. The second is let's replace it. Uh, and the third is that like it, it doesn't work, none of this works. Um, so yeah, the, the sense that we can imagine something different is that we have to reach that stage where we, we have lost the satisfaction with what the house, the pleasure specifically, or the enjoyments and the entitlements that the house has afforded us. And I think Trump is helping in that sense. Uh, it, it is helping us getting disillusioned with the house by making it very explicit, this attempt to fix it or to um, bring a different order, a more stable or secure order in his mind to it. But with people, for example, who have worked with Giroud's ideas, which, which are related to critical pedagogy, this idea of, um, and, and the historicity of that idea, the location of that idea being in a period of industrial capitalism, not financial capitalism, that's how it originated in civil rights, uh, struggles for human rights, um, and in, um, um, in the period of Cold War, right? So the things that were made possible in that period are not possible right now. So working with people who have worked with these ideas for 30 years, for example, now in the U.S., coming to me and saying, um, I'm completely disillusioned, and then feeling that disillusionment as a problem, I, I generally say it's actually disillusionment is not a problem. It's, it's a good thing. It's this illusion, and you don't want to be <laughs> living in an illusion. So how do we see this as a productive moment to actually um, examine the history of this? And the fact that, for example, in the U.S. now, I see a lot of people um, going back to uh, thinking about um, uh, civil rights movement as a, as a, as a place to, to, of inspiration. But then I generally say, okay, when your government was doing this, at the same time, in, in, if you look at a critical race theory, for example, they have analysis of the uh, legal process of school desegregation, for example, that show that the justification for school desegregation was actually the Cold War. The U.S. could not um, afford to have, uh, as part of its image, this idea of segregated school schools when it was selling an image of democracy and liberty in other countries, while at the same time it was intervening in Latin America with coups all around, um, with killings and torture, at the same time that at home it was creating this other narrative. So critical race theory talks about the fact that uh, the state has been created to protect capital, to protect, protect property, and they have only been uh, concessions when the interests of capital converged with the interests of um, the, the citizenry, and in that case, that was the that was a case in point. So, right now, uh, going back to that movement is not going to have the same effect, right? So, it is a generational thing, I think, as well, in terms of. Mm, how if if what has worked before is not going to work in the current state of things, then then what, right? And 
if people feel that the then what question is a very threatening question, they are going to go one way. But if you think that the then what is an opportunity for us to approach this very differently, then, then it's something else. But in that sense, we would have needed an education that prepares us to deal with complexity, with paradoxes, with ambiguity, with uncertainty, and with unpredictability, so that we can walk together in this foggy world, not know, but together, right? And seeing failure as in disillusionment as actually productive things rather than um, being threatened by this. So. So when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative, they were possibly the foremost uh, 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 harmful words anybody could bring to these discussions at all, because it's only it's it's the process of knowing there is an alternative and asking what it might be is what unlocks all the creativity that we need right now. Yeah. I think it it unlocks a curiosity. Um, in order to unlock the creativity, we need that that neurogenesis thing, which is not just about thinking, it's sensorial. Um, and like, I've been working a lot with indigenous people and uh, without, and I have a lot of reverence for the gifts and the teachings, but without idealization, I don't think there is a model there or there are examples and there are examples of practices that we have lost especially practices that remind us how, of how entangled we are with everything and that dissociate us from our uh, from the obsession with identity. So I, I'm going in that direction with them. But one of the things that I've heard a lot in Brazil, for example, is that we learn fr first from the gut. The gut changes the heart and the thinking follows. So I've been trying to follow that um, that insight and, and, and understand it in terms of pedagogical implications. So how do we, um, in, how do we open up a form of education that is, um, that is out, it, that unlocks creativity outside of this box? Right. Um, and to be very honest with you, like, it has been in the experiments we've been doing with the collective embodied experiences that make you get in contact with something that is in excess of knowing, something that is unknowable uh, in the, the articulated sense, but that you can touch, that then helps you change your thinking rather than the other way around. That thinking will change that. Thinking helps get to the point where you understand your choices and the implications you have. But beyond that, it's the body that, that has to do something. At the same time, I'm very wary of how the New Age movement has gone, which kind of uh, tries to open these things up, but for sometimes uh, reasons that are still located in the house, so it does, it kind of opens up, may open up one of the carrying walls, but still keeps the other walls and the, or, or starts talking about it in a different way, but doesn't necessarily sensorially embody it. So you have all this, and then there are lots of people selling models and respond in certainties, especially for 
a way of being that sees certainty as the precondition for like security. So it's epistemic certainty as a precondition for ontological security. You have a lot of people selling things that are meant to work, but at the same time, the promises are very overstated and the problems are really like deep and we, we don't get the time. I think it at some point becomes a distraction to want these models and then not have the time to actually see how we are embedded in something very, um, in a way, like very water damaged and that we'll go, we'll have to go. Because then this promises help us reinvest in the same structures. So, of if, we, so if, if we want to build uh, new houses to move out into instead, then... If, you know, so you talked about then what, or you know, we could also go back a bit and talk about having those really good what if questions. You know, what if actually it worked like this, or we did it like this? And uh, one of the things that I love sort of seeing in 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 some of the transition town groups, for example, that I go to visit is when they when they have a really powerful what if question and they facilitate that process of inviting people into it, and it leads to all kinds of amazing things. What, what for you are the, are the ingredients of a good what if or then what question? It's like, what if it's something we can't imagine right now, but we can tap with other senses, right? So do we need the houses? What, does, what do the houses prevent us from being? Do we need, I believe we need shelter, but it's temporary shelter. We don't need shelter all the time. So we need shelter when it's really cold or when it's really hot or, um, yeah, when, when basically the weather is affecting our possibility for survival. So what does it mean also not to have that kind of shelter? What does it mean to be part um, of the this interwoven entanglement with everything without having our defenses up all the time? Uh, what if we are much more than we have become in terms of possibilities for, for being, for our structures of being? What if we can relate in ways that we haven't been able to uh, articulate within the house? Um, yeah, these these are the kinds of questions I've I've been working with um, young people in my family and outside that have been asking what am I doing here, right? And um, saying if the house is falling apart and I'm not gonna have these enjoyments anymore, then what? Uh, some of them are asking this. Others are saying like we're destroying everything. I don't want to stay to see it happening right so levels of depression anxiety and and self-harm have been um have been on the rise and um the kinds of things that i see are um are useful i think in this in this process is um number one like 
metaphorically in, or in terms of narratives, pluralizing the narratives for young people, having more narratives. So one of the conversations went, um, I, I was asking, what is this pain? What do you, where, where do you think this pain comes from that they feel? And the response was that it was like a phantom limb pain. And uh, I thought it was very insightful in the mask. So why do you feel that it's phantom limb? And then the explanation was because people um, tell us we shouldn't have it and it's there, right? And, and then the teachers and the psychologists and the psychiatrists say, um, you should just be functional in the house. You should just uh, numb yourself to this pain and be functional in the house. And I said, that's, and then they said, and then you feel guilty for feeling it when you shouldn't be feeling it too. And I said, like, uh, if we go, if you, if, if you go to the, the books about uh, self-harm and suicide, you will see that the explanation is that there's a lack of belonging and there is, um, um, people are overwhelmed with information, which I think it's, it's absolutely true in our times. And there's also lack of self-worth. So I tested it a little bit and I said, um, is this what you feel you're feeling, lack of belonging or self-worth? And the response surprised me. For, for some of them, it was like, no, I actually feel quite connected with everything. It's just that everything is being destroyed. I don't want to stay, mm. right? And then uh, I, my conversation went through like indigenous, other some indigenous um, cosmologists would say, that if we are connected with everything, people are dying in Syria. You are feeling it here, oh, right? And the problem that the, in the fact that we don't have the words to talk about it or to um, understand the implications of this is actually what's hurting. Mm -hmm. And then I, I tested this again with young people and said, does it help to name it as um, a, a pain that comes from a connection that is unacknowledged? And they said it helps, but it doesn't help us deal with the pain. So I went back to the this indigenous, I, I work in a few indigenous communities and I said, so how would you respond to that? And they said, um, this is another problem of the house is that it numbs our senses. So we don't have five senses, we have 99. And that's a, the idea that we can sense and feel much more than we, um, we are allowed to within the house. And that um, the same way I was told, the same way that we can um, um, uh, scale our hearing to hear what is near and what is far, we can scale the sense of the heart in the, how you sense, right? And it, they said that it was very important when you were feeling the collective pain to scale the heart to the collective level because an individual heart like clothes cannot deal with the collective pain. We need to do it collectively. Yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Like the, the sense of being overwhelmed, not only with information, but also with pain, mm -hmm. right? Is to do with our incapacity within the house to um, scale up the heart and see ourselves as part of everything. And not just in one temporality, but in a much longer temporality that spans seven generations before, seven generations to come. And if we can't do that, if it's just this life, this individual body, 
that needs to be functional within capitalist modern societies, it becomes a very difficult uh, thing for young people to, to do when the house is falling apart, right? And when they know. I spoke to a woman um, who uses this term post pre-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. <laughs> and talks about how with, you know, with climate change that when you, which is very similar to what you're talking about, you know, when you live with climate change uh, and you experience anxiety and stress and because of that, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the same symptoms. But it was interesting, halfway through she said, but actually it's, it seems wrong to call it a disorder. It's not a disorder because it's entirely natural. You know, you don't say that people experience shit my house is on fire disorder you know it's actually a perfectly <laughs> natural response to a really awful situation um, it's sanity actually. it's sanity absolutely um uh when uh so looking at looking at some of your some, some of your work you know I, I wonder to what extent if we want to be in the position to be able to be the people who are holding that inquiry about what comes next after the house. So what is what what do we do next? And we are inviting the imagination into that space, holding those in those spaces where where the collective people are coming together to imagine what comes next. What is the what is the role of really clearly understanding our our history have mm -hmm. in that you know we have there was that extraordinary like going back to the uh, henry Giroux thing about the disimagination machine you know, when ben carson was basically saying well yeah all the slaves they came here in pursuit of the great american dream you now they sort of came here on holiday uh, hoping they might find a good job while they were here you know when when our history is distorted and devalued and abused in that way how do how does that affect our ability to imagine uh, something other than than the house? It's yeah, that's that's a a very 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 good question. Um, again, in the collective, we talk about um, this process of um, hospicing a world that is dying, in assisting with the birth of something new, undefined, and potentially but not necessarily wiser. So in order to do that, the first thing is we need to sit with the mistakes, the repeated mistakes that we have made and continue, continuously make uh, in order to make different mistakes in the future. So we also need to break this idea that it's going to be set right. But if we don't have the stamina to sit with our denials, our foreclosures, in the difficult things without falling apart internally or without having our relationships fall apart, we can't even start the process because we will we will keep on defending and protecting uh, our own fragility in, in doing this. And that's the fragility that the house creates. Mm. So in this process of hospicing and midwifering, we if you, you need to imagine a kind of a Venn diagram that this hospicing, then there's midwifering touching it and there's an interface action. In that interface, there is a storm, and um, and there's an eye of the storm right there. And if you walk, like, so education or pedagogy needs to be at that eye. If you walk too fast, you get caught in the storm. If you walk too slow, you get caught in the storm, right? So you need to be, like, with the storm in many ways. 
And then we talk about two things that you need to pay attention in relation to hospicing and two things in relation to uh, helping with the birth. So in relation to hospicing, there is um, intellectual accountability. So being able to sit with these things, but then not being caught in the uh, kind of vortex that that itself creates. So you need something else. You need existential surrender to uh, like outside the fragility that we have been conditioned in. So intellectual accountability, yes, but you also need to find other ways of being because you can't, in this idea of being um, that is reduced to knowing, if you go deep into all these violences of the past, you get caught in a vortex of guilt and blame and worthlessness and lack of belonging. So that is not useful. What is useful would be to find another way of being that can help you sit with that, right? And that's existential surrender to what is in excess of knowing is necessary in here. Then on the other side, for the birth, you need two things that are similar but different. So instead of intellectual accountability, you need existential accountability, but not as an intellectual choice. It's already something that neurologically we are prone to doing if we can find that key. And then you need also intellectual surrender. So the intellectual surrender, the best way that I think we can talk about it is allowing the land to dream through you. So allowing the imagination to open to the collective um, entanglement with things and not thinking it is an, uh, an individual task. It is something that comes through you. Indigenous people would say it's through your ancestors. But the ancestors are not only human and they are not only those who have come before. They are also those yet to come because it's a cyclical thing. So... How do we step back from this obsession and addiction to what the house has um, conditioned, right? To allow ourselves to see um, our being not just confined to this body, to see ourselves, uh, the extension of our being in everything, and that thing being able to dream with us. In the in the the us is an us because when we think about us, it's a kind of a one plus one thing. It's me and you. But what I'm talking about, I think it's me in you, right? Me in this bigger metabolism where um, I'm just part uh, of of something that um, that uh, is born and dies every day. Right, and that is in this continuous cycle of regeneration. But that right now is probably stuck <laughs> somewhere and sick, trying to to heal itself. And how do I allow the other kind of cells, like new red blood cells coming from the marrow and the white blood cells coming to fight the the infection? How do I allow that to pass through me without being afraid of dying or afraid of pain in this process because it is painful already. Mm. It's just that the effort that it takes for us to placate the pain um, is becoming, like, is preventing us from doing other things that we can do with pain. 
right? And in terms of opening up other possibilities. One of, one of the questions I've asked everybody that I've spoken to in this, and that there's been a real range of, uh, of answers on it, is if you had been elected as the Prime Minister of Canada or as the President of Brazil or wherever, and you had run on a platform of make Canada imaginative again, so you had decided that there was a, uh, an intense, acute need at this time to foster imagination through education, in public life, uh, at the community level, that, that really the only way forward was going to be to have a national kind of emergency program of imagination building and valuing and enhancing. I wonder what sort of things you might do in your first hundred days in office? I think the government of Canada is actually promoting that agenda, but for the agenda of innovation and the idea of saving or regenerating the economy, but without questioning the premises of exchange value and the continuity of, of financial capitalism. So um, I would probably be working towards a different agenda of um, opening ourselves up to other possibilities of being. What would I do at a national level? I would probably, especially in Canada, I would talk to some of the elders I know in the community, <laughs> in the indigenous communities, and say, that's our opportunity to invite people into these other practices. The, in, in, in a ironic way, they have it here, right? They have uh, people who still have access to um, other practices and they have other communities here with access to practices like mindfulness, which are often instrumentalized to, for functionality in the capitalist economy too. But I would get these elders together and say, it's our opportunity uh, if we have an agenda of neurogenesis and ontogenesis, <laughs> that's the time where we can invite those who are uh, ready to to jump into this um, unknown um, to get as many people as possible to see that there are other possibilities. It's just that we can't put these possibilities in the box straight away. We have to leave them. Uh, or start living them before we can start articulating. So I would work with the wealth that is already here. Wonderful. And just the last thing I was, was wondering was, you, you talked about education uh, a bit. I wonder if you, you know, what, if we were able to wave a magic wand over our education system? You know, I've, I've spoken to some people who are working very hard to try and bring a more imaginative practice into mainstream school and some other people who say mainstream school is just is basically a disimagination machine and we need to unschool and we need to find alternative and use, use the community as, as the way that we, we educate. I wonder for you what would our education system look like if it were most designed to produce a generation of young people who who were able to understand the house they're in and play an act full active role in designing whatever comes next it's interesting i work with both i work with also both those who want 
to transform the current educational system, not because they believe in the agenda, the national agenda of the system, but because they know that it's probably the, the only place that where we have uh, young people <laughs> forced to be in a place uh, for some time, and that's a kept, not a captive audience because they are somewhere else also with their minds, but yeah, there, there's something about that, um, that idea that it's still a commons that we need to fight for. Uh, despite um, other agendas being posed on it. And I, I, I also work with those who have given up the the idea of formal schooling and are into something else. So I think for formal schooling, I would say um, our children have the right to know what's going on. And they have the right also to know about communities that have been um, swimming, Right. So if the waters are rising, we need to learn to swim. And I don't believe it's about models. It's not going there and see how that community can provide a model, but examples. And that includes paradoxes, failures, and complexities of every example. So one of the projects that I have, uh, of research projects, is to create case studies of communities that are in organizations and social initiatives that are doing uh, three of the four um, criteria that we have that are related to the house. So communities that are imagining beyond, not imagining, they are setting their horizons, horizons of hope beyond capitalism and socialism. They are setting their horizons of hope beyond uh, this idea of singular universal rationality. Uh, beyond, the third thing is... Um, uh, anthropocentrism or anthropocentric separability, so the idea that we're separate from each other. And the fourth thing, if I remember, nation states and the idea um, of, um, but there's something about relationships too. I don't know which one. Uh, there's this, this idea of um, promoting relationships be, beyond knowledge, identity, and understanding. But I don't remember where exactly it goes. So the four things are basically the nation state, separability, um, single rationality, and um, capitalism, and socialism. So we're working with uh, communities both in Latin America and in, uh, but ma mainly in Latin America, that have um, identified themselves as doing at least three of this, and um, uh, creating stories that can be told to young people to say that, look, this has happened in other places before, mm -hmm. actually to subsidize the house you are in right now. So that, that house uh, has a cost that was not paid by the people in the house um, necessarily. Uh, it was, the house sucked resources from the planet and deposited its waste in the planet as well. And we are reaching the limits of that in the communities that have uh, not being in the house or have been associated with the house, but with a foot outside fighting these effects have a lot to teach us. So young people have the right to know about the struggles and the fights of other communities. And I think they also have the right to know that uh, there are other practices of being that um, can provide them with the things that they need right now to be able to survive this. Right? So, um, maybe even talking metaphorically about neuroscience 
in terms of other possibilities of generating dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin so that we can, we can be with each other in a very different way. With those who are outside uh, already who are promoting alternatives, my work has been uh, more in terms uh, like hmm, the engagement has been to figure out another way of of uh, an alternative way of engaging with alternatives that is just not a uh, dialectical negation of what you don't like in the old system. So generally, it gets caught. the The process gets caught in this. Um, so there's an analysis, I don't like this in the old, I'm, I'm going to try to do something that is opposite to that. And um, that creates a problem because it, it's like you saying or me saying, I'm not going to be like my mom, right? And in the end, you are still caught in that relationship between what you are rejecting, what you are negating, and what you want to become. So. There is another way of stepping out of it and saying this is actually a dynamic and what is actually possible doesn't depend on this, right? Yes, we need to sit with that and we need to sit, but we also need to sit with our own response to it because the response is still caught in the same, in the, in the same structure of being. So, it, it is a more difficult process with those who are engaged in alternatives because there is also a very strong serotonin response about self-worth. That I, if I get this right, then I'm going to change the world. And um, then failure becomes a, a real problem. And it's a personal um, yeah, validation problem. So dealing with critique and dealing with um, um, paradoxes is it, more difficult even in, than in the formal system. <laughs> like the, the idea that education should be about complexities, paradoxes, ambiguity is actually easier to swallow in the, if you're still in the system than if you're trying to create something different. And for that, I think I, I um, witnessed a teaching from... Um, Deborah Friesen, once in the Occupy movement in Ireland, I was waiting to speak uh, at, a, at a square. They had asked me to talk about um, um, global relations and distribution. And she was speaking, I think, before me. And what she was saying is that once the system peaks and you want to walk out, the, uh, the hope you have for an alternative is still bound by the hot ashes of the old, right? So you're still kind of looking for the same sense of security and through the same sense of entitlement that the old has afforded. But she said, like, it should be that this is not what is going to help. You need to know that whatever alternative you create from the hot ashes is still going to reproduce and fail, to reproduce the old and fail. And it is this failure that has the seeds of what those who come after you may take in the fertile soil when the, these ashes have cooled down, right? And I thought that was really what um, what is necessary. For, so how do we go for the seeds 
and have the sense that there are hot ashes that need to cool down to become uh, composted and then become the fertile soil for those who come after us mm. rather than look for our own sense of worth and belonging and value in the thing that we're doing. And that kind of thinking I found, or that kind of sensing, actually, it's not a thinking, it's a, it's, it just, it comes from the gut. It's a visceral thing about us being like the, those who come after us are still us. And my body has a different temporality, right? That spans uh, lifetimes. And I take account of that as I'm doing something and I have more patience to learn from my mistakes and make so that others can make different ones, not the same ones. And I can articulate that carefully and kind of pay attention to the pathway in a very different way so that um, it, it's not for me, it's for others. So my own process of um, self-validation doesn't become the priority here, which is something interesting at the house. I think part of the problem is that separability, this idea of separation of humans from, from everything else uh, or us from each other has created the idea that we don't have intrinsic value and therefore we have to prove why we're alive. So the sense of worthlessness and the fear of worthlessness, of pointlessness, of meaninglessness tends to drive a lot of our efforts. But if we remove that fear, I think that's my if question. If we manage to remove that fear of pointlessness, worthlessness, and meaninglessness, what would be possible for us to do? And so much of the, so much of the technology that we that we distract ourselves with and that has such a harmful impact on our attention span and, and uh, connection with each other is is entirely founded on that. <laughs> I, you know, I tweet, yeah. therefore I am. I post on Facebook, therefore exactly. I am. And if I don't do that, then actually, who am I anymore? Actually. Um, so so um, that's all the questions that I had. But I just. If, if there was anything that you wanted to say about imagination that I haven't asked you with a question to elicit what you wanted to say, now is the moment. I think the only thing I would add, one of the frameworks we're working with is the Earth Care framework. And Earth Care means uh, ecological for Earth, then care is cognitive, affective, relational, and economic justice. So it's a framework for justice in for analysis and um, I was in Mexico like last month and we worked with the, the translation not not necessarily just the linguistic translation but the uh, kind of um, uh, mm, how do you say that it's, it's a different kind of translation also in terms of ways of being with Nahuatl and um, uh, Purapecha people there, so with two different indigenous groups. And something came that was super um, cool, I think, <laughs> from that process that I think is related to your question too. Um, so we were trying to find a, a metaphor to talk about this newness, right? The, the new that needs to come up. And um, we settled for the metaphor of mycelium and mushrooms. 
So the mushrooms would be economic and ecological justice. In the mycelium, underneath the earth, is cognitive, affective, and relational justice. So the point here is that without a healthy mycelium, there's no mushroom, right? The mycelium needs to be healthy. Uh, so if we don't have cognitive, affective, and relational, um, um, I would go back to ontogenesis or neurogenesis, we're only going to be reproducing the same things that have been reproduced before. And most of the alternative initiatives that I have worked with and found focus exactly on the mushroom rather than on the mycelium. So I would say the mycelium itself is responsible for communication in the forest, for decomposition, and for distribution of nutrients and finding actually nutrients. It just spreads to be able to find the water, find what this mushroom needs, and find even the right place with the right temperature. Um, if we use mycelium as a, as a metaphor for being and for education, as we are in this transition to something different, what would transition look like if we didn't fo focus necessarily on the mushroom or on the, on the normative aspects of the mushroom, but on the composition of the place where it's going to emerge from, right? And the other thing that came up in the Spanish um, version of the, the framework is that um, when the way that this community translated earth care was, um, it was it's a network right so it's a network in cuidados de la tierra which means we are instead of when we hear it it's like cuidado de la tierra care of the earth and it's actually the opposite it's the care the earth has towards us and then they kept saying that the most invisibilized labor is the labor of the earth. And unless we start from there, from the fact that we are taken care of, and that that entails a visceral responsibility, then we can't, like, we, it can't be, <laughs> it can't be done top down. It has to be from the ground up. And the ground up means allowing the ground to actually dream through us to be part of our bodies, to be part of, to be a limb so that we can feel its pain and understand metabolically what this mycelium needs to do to get to a, a space of sanity, to, um, to have the fruit of healthy mushrooms, which would be then ecological and economic, a very different economic and ecological configuration. So, yeah, I thought that that was important as well.